0: It's not just like the FBI did an incompetent job, which would be bad enough when you're talking about a bio-warfare attack on Congress, you'd want to get it right, but they actually misled not just the public, they misled the Congress.
1: You're listening to The Corbett Report.
2: Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you in a conversation that is being recorded on the 1st of December 2020, and this morning I am joined online. By Mick Harrison and David Meiswinkle, uh, with the Lawyers Committee for 9/11 Inquiry, which is an organization that my long-term and well-informed listeners will be familiar with from my previous conversation, uh, interview 1383. For those keeping track at home, uh, talking to the Lawyers uh, Committee for 9/11 Inquiry about the 9/11 Grand Jury. But today we're going to be talking about a slightly different topic. The recently launched Lawyers Committee Anthrax Petition, a petition to Congress for a redress of grievances that we're going to be talking about in some degree of detail. So let's invite them on and let's introduce them. Uh, first of all, David, thank you for joining us today. James, th- thank you for having us. And Mick, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you, James. Good to be here. All right. Could you two just take a brief moment to introduce yourselves and your relation to the Lawyers Committee?
1: Well, I'm, I'm the... Uh... President and Executive Director of the Lawyers Committee. I'm a United States Army veteran. I'm a uh, former police officer and a whistleblower and uh, a criminal defense attorney. And uh, probably about four years ago or so, and Mick can correct me, we got together a number of uh, very uh, conscientious and concerned citizens around the 9-11 issue. And as you know, uh, our first uh, effort was to try and get a grand jury petition set it up and get a some kind of a movement in New York City. And uh, we are well on the way to doing that. And uh, we have uh, concluded through that investigation that the controlled demolition bombs and explosives were involved in bringing those, those towers down. Now, our second big effort, although we've done other efforts in between, is the anthrax investigation. We've submitted now to Congress a 76-page document. With 69 exhibits, some of the exhibits never seen before by the public, and a three-page uh, letter you've probably received, an executive summary of the of the of uh, what we found. So uh, basically we're excited that uh, we're going to try to move with Congress. We're also working on a grand jury petition that will be submitted to the U.S. attorney probably within a month to a month and a half that will cover these anthrax crimes, but actually even in a more comprehensive manner than we've
2: done thus far. Excellent. And Mick, can you tell us about your position with the Lawyers Committee?
0: Sure. I'm the litigation director, James, and I handle the civil federal lawsuits. We have uh, five active at the moment. Three are Freedom of Information Act lawsuits, trying to get uh, government documents related to 9-11. And if you want to know more about those, we can chat about those at some point. We also have a lawsuit related to the grand jury, uh, case you mentioned, that we'll talk about later. Um, We did submit, as David mentioned, a petition to the U.S. attorney in New York uh, regarding the demolition evidence, and because it appears uh, that uh, petition did not get submitted to the federal grand jury as required by law, we are suing the U.S. attorney in federal court to force that to happen. And then our our other federal lawsuit, the fifth one, is regarding the FBI 9-11 Review Commission, not to be confused with the original 9-11 Commission, this was uh, 2014, 2015. Ed Meese was in charge of a new panel that was mandated by Congress to look at all the new evidence and actually a lot of the old evidence regarding 9-11, but they actually uh, didn't do that. They pretended to do it, but didn't actually do it. So we're suing to try to force that to happen in reality. And I just a little background on me, I'm a whistleblower attorney of what, 30 years now experience. I represent uh, government and corporate whistleblowers. I also represent environmental groups, nonprofits and government oversight issues
2: and law enforcement issues for citizens. I'll stop there. I could go on. I think that will suffice for now. But as you say, we will be circling back around to the 9-11 work that uh, obviously is one of the core mission uh, programs of the 9-11 inquiry. Uh, But let's Let's get into today's conversation talking specifically about the Anthrax petition. And before I think we even get into the technical details of what this petition is and what it's attempting to do, I think we have to set the groundwork for this conversation. It should be fairly apparent to my regular listeners the importance of the 2001 anthrax attacks during this time that we are living through right now. Uh, So much of what we are living through right now has been prepared legislatively and in terms of other organizations and uh, groups within the government that have actually been created as a result of what happened in late 2001 in the anthrax attacks. But can I get in your own words what you feel the importance of raising this issue once again is?
1: Right, well, as you mentioned, uh, the context is very important. And as if we think back to 2001, uh, the first anthrax attack letters were sent out a week after 9-11. And the, uh, the suspects at that time uh, that the, the media had been hyping and for quite a while was Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, interestingly enough, however, in December, it was found that the anthrax letters didn't uh, contain uh, the bed which would be associated with Iraq. Uh, the, during that period of time, however... Uh, during the scare or the panic, the U.S. Patriot Act was uh, basically pushed through and approved in late October, uh, right after two senators received uh, the attack letters, uh, Senator Daschle and Senator Leahy. Now, th- during that period of time, there were two launchings, uh, this way i characterize them, one around September 18th and another one around October 9th. And then eventually October 15th, uh, Daxel got his letter. November 16th, uh, Leahy's letter was found in the mail, but during that time, a man named Robert Stevens, uh, who worked for American media down in Boca Rotone in Florida, died from anthrax, and he was the first known person to have died. In total, five people died. 17 were poisoned by it, so a total of 22, and then investigations began. They lasted for nine years at least, and they went through a number of, of, of possibilities now what's interesting of this is this is a bioweapon and the type of anthrax here it's a lot of controversy over and depending on who you talk about is what was the nature of this it was, again, There was again there's two launchings the first to the new york post and tom Brokaw, cbs uh that was a, a granular brown stuff that was of course strong enough to kill you if you inhaled it but the uh, second to the U.S. senators was much more refined and pure. It had never been seen before. On one spore was a trillion. If you think of that, James, a trillion spores on, on one gram of, of this stuff. So this was like, again, as I said, it was never seen before. Uh, but there was a lot of controversy between people who said it wasn't a weaponized uh, version and uh there was uh, it found inside these uh, these uh, these spores were different chemicals, which we can talk about. Things that uh, Mick will probably get into it too. If for these morphites, which were found for morphs, and there's other things like tin and and silicone and iron and oxygen. And uh, you know where you start to look at where they where they supposedly are, you can find out that the proper investigation really wasn't done. So where we are now, and you said. Uh, right now, we're in the midst of uh, another a pandemic, or so to speak, a worldwide pandemic where we have this uh, material that's come out of wherever it's come out of, whether it's Wuhan or whether it's somewhere else. But the question there is whether and what is this? And uh, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, esteemed uh, attorney, Francis Boyle, who actually drafted the bioweapons treaty, Uh, He believes that uh, there's a bioweapon involved here. We haven't taken a position on the lawyers committee, hasn't taken a position on whether it's a bioweapon or not. But if the uh, original attack back in 2001 had properly been investigated, perhaps many things, including what we're experiencing today, would not have happened or be happening.
2: Such an important issue, and I want to direct people at this point to the resources that I'll be providing in the show notes, links not only to the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 inquiry at lc4911.org, that's lcfor911.org, but also to the Anthrax uh, petition. First of all, the uh, executive summary, uh, the three-page summary that does a good job of simply summarizing the main points of this investigation, but perhaps more importantly to the 76-page petition itself and the Exhibits Index, which contains more information about this and more gritty details than we can possibly get into in a conversation like this. So that will all be linked up in the show notes, and I invite people to explore that and really get into this. But let's see if we can summarize some of the main evidence, because I understand you have uh, compiled a team of researchers to help you in your investigation for this petition and have uncovered even new documents that have not been seen by the public before. Let's talk about some of the evidence that you have uncovered.
0: Right. Uh, so, so Dave, before you do that, can I just add a couple points to James's earlier question? Because the big picture question about why is this still important, you know, is maybe lost on some people. This did happen in 2001. So, uh, I mean, people should keep in mind, maybe I'm stating the obvious, that the anthrax attacks were phase two of the 9-11 attacks. So, they came on the heels of the attacks that brought down the Twin Towers. As Dave mentioned, we have this petition with the demolition evidence indicating that there's much more to the destruction of the towers than people have been told. So we don't have at the moment reason to believe that the phase two of the attacks, the anthrax attacks were perpetrated by people other than those who perpetrated phase one of the attacks, uh, the folks who brought down the towers. And, you know, phase two was used just as phase one to exacerbate fear, to uh, uh, force folks to change their normal, let's say, pacifism, to be ready for the U.S. to go to war in Afghanistan, Iraq. And now we have the endless war on terror that resulted. So keep in mind, it wasn't just the terror attacks of 9-11, but the follow-on anthrax attacks that really generated so much fear and anxiety that people were ready to support, uh, these wars that, you know, have, have continued. So I just want to add that big picture context. And then Dave, go ahead with your talk about the evidence and maybe, maybe describe our investigative committee a little bit.
1: Right. Uh, certainly, uh, James, we have an interesting committee. Uh, we have one there, uh, a number of, uh, uh, attorneys like John John O'Kelly, who's on our board, and Jane Clark. John O'Kelly's from New York and Jane's from Texas. And we have uh, researchers like Barbara Honecker on there. And we have uh, a key researcher, investigator, Christine Borgeson, is 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 part of our committee. Uh, Graham McQueen is uh, a, a a doctor of religion in uh, Canada and has written extensively on 9-11 issues. Uh, he's also written a book on anthrax as a domestic conspiracy and Merle Nass who is actually a doctor and she's worked with anthrax in Rhodesia and so she's really an expert on it. So we had before our committee people like Rick Lambert, he came before head of the FBI, head of the, uh, at least he was head of the Amerithrax investigation for four years. He was an inspector, he was in charge, he was a whistleblower, he left. When he left he was totally disconcerted by what he experienced with the FBI. And uh, he wrote a 2,000-page summary, 16 pages exculpating Bruce Ivins. He told us, if we can get it, we'd have to go to Congress to get it. That That's how sensitive this is. Now, it was uh, people had tried to get it through uh, Freedom of Information Act, and still, they, at least they found it existed in Quantico, but they didn't get it yet. We're going to try and make an effort to get that. Now, uh, what we found is this, is that... A number of suspects have been arraigned over the years, and it started with people in Pennsylvania, two fellows. I think they worked in Levittown or they worked somewhere outside of Philadelphia, and uh, they had nothing to do with it. But they were, I think, a Palestinian background, and they lost their job because of the investigation. Then there was a doctor in New York who had nothing to do with it, but he became uh, suspicious for some reason or another. And he was eventually exonerated, but he lost his marriage. Then there was a guy named Perry Maxell, who actually worked at USEMRED, which is the United States Army Medical Research Institute for Infectious Diseases, and that's where Fort Dietrich, and uh, they squeezed him so much that he started drinking again, which he, he shouldn't do because he had a bad liver, and then he ends up dying. Then they spend from 2002 to 2007 on Stephen Hatfield, and Hatfield was uh you know their prime suspect for a long time and then he turned the tables on them and he sued them because of violation of his privacy rights and he won 5.8 million dollars then at that time they had bruce ivan's lined up now bruce had some uh, mental health issues uh, earlier on but they squeezed him they embarrassed him they they uh harassed him they harassed his family and eventually uh you know uh he supposedly, allegedly commits suicide. Now, we've had two people tell us they think he was murdered. We don't know that, but he was dead, even though he was on, on 24-7 watch, and uh, he started drinking too. So that's characteristic of when they start putting pressure on you, start watching you, start bring, uh, monitoring everything you do in your life for 24-7, puts a lot of pressure in, and people start drinking. What we found out, based on... Uh, our research based on talking to witnesses was that he could not have done this. He didn't have the acumen. He hadn't have the background, although he was an expert in anthrax. The difference here is that at Fort Dietrich, the anthrax was liquid. And what we're dealing with is a sophisticated powder that takes a uh, sophisticated uh, equipment to develop. And it's more or less along the lines of a bioweapon. Now, what's really interesting is earlier on, uh, and for whatever reason, the FBI brings Battelle in to analyze this stuff, okay? That just uh, got, for, I think, from the Daxel letter. And the Army was going, wow, this stuff is the strongest stuff we've ever seen. Uh, you know, back in the 60s, this is 10 times stronger than anything when Nixon shut the program down in 1969. Battelle gets a hold of it, Thomas Kuthau, I think is his name, or something like that. And he comes back and says, ah, there's, this stuff's nothing. He says uh, it's like 10 to 50 times less powerful than what the army's saying. That to which the army colonel responds. He goes crazy. He goes bonkers. And he says, you guys autoclave this stuff. You turn it into hockey pucks. In other words, hockey pucks. In other words, you destroy the evidence that you're analyzing. All right. And, the, and, the, and basically trying to destroy the investigation. So that's at the beginning of this. This stuff is so energetic the Daxo letters, it's climbing up the test tubes. When they try to look at, put it under a microscope, it's moving off the plate of the microscope. So the, the, uh, what we're doing with the summary, and I, I know I'm maybe going on a little bit too too long here on this because you we could talk for, like you said, for hours on this subject matter. But what our investigation showed is that uh, Ivan's couldn't have done it, that the, there wouldn't have been evidence to prove him guilty whatsoever. And we go into the science, which we will, and Mick will we'll pick up on that, uh, you, we'll see that their strongest suit, the science is as weak as anything. It's not a strong suit. And that we find out, too, that uh, the FBI, we believe they obstructed and corrupted the investigation. We believe that this investigation could needs to be taken up to Congress and we need, uh, in fact, there was a bill at one time, H.R. 720. We've talked to Rush Holt about it. He's retired now. Uh, 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 Congressman Nadler's still around. Uh, uh, Senator Leahy's still around. Uh, uh, Senator Grassley's still around. They all want another investigation. New York Times want an investigation. The Washington Post want an investigation. We've talked to a number of scientists that believes that this should be investigated, so let's investigate it. But the FBI can't investigate itself. The, the the Justice Department can't investigate itself. So we'll be asking for a special investigator, special counsel to get involved.
2: Uh, Mick, I'll turn it over to you to anything to add about that evidence. But before we do so, I should uh, just vouch for the. Uh, investigation committee that you've put together and say that I myself have interviewed both Dr. Gray McQueen and Dr. Meryl Nass about their respective anthrax research. So I'll put the links into the sh- in the show notes into those conversations so people can hear more of their, their own uh, research and investigation into this. But uh, Mick, how about uh, anything to add about regarding the evidence that you've uncovered?
0: Sure. Well, there are details, of course, in the petition, but some big picture points that are worth noting One is that the case against Bruce Ivins, Dr. Bruce Ivins by the FBI appeared strong for those who just took what the FBI said at face value. When you really looked at the details, which we did, there really was, not only was there nothing there against Ivins, there was really some pretty strong evidence as, as Dave said, the FBI had misled, intentionally misled, not just the public, but Congress as well. Now, what are the key points in that? Well, one is, the FBI took the position that Ivan's appeared guilty because what they called the murder weapon, which was a certain flask of anthrax at the uh, Maryland facility, the army facility at Fort Detrick, they called it 1029, RMR 1029. The FBI said that was the murder weapon. And they said that because they did genetic analysis, DNA analysis, which they said, and they did this based on a thousand samples that they collected from labs around the country and some outside the country, of folks who had used anthrax and they were trying to track where the anthrax came from that was used in the attacks. So they did the DNA analysis and they came up with what they called a fingerprint, which was these morphs that they've mentioned, some, some mutations that were unusual that they found in the attack anthrax. And so they went through all these samples that they had gotten by subpoena or a consensual search from these labs and they were trying to find out which lab had the fingerprint, the unique combination of DNA morphs that matched the attack anthrax. And and they claimed that their analysis, scientific analysis showed that it all tracked back to RMR 1029, the flask that they say Bruce Ivins controlled. Well, the first problem with that is Bruce Ivins didn't control RMR 1029, he did use it but a lot of folks at US Amrit had access to it, probably a hundred folks or more. He also had sent um, portions of that same anthrax from RMR 1029 to Dugway, Proving Ground, a big army facility that does research on, among other things, biological weapons and anthrax, and also to Battelle in Ohio, which does a lot of work for the government, including the CIA. So other people had it. It wasn't just Ivan. So the first basically misrepresentation was Ivan's controlled the murder weapon. Well, that was just a lie. I mean, it, that's, it just wasn't the case. So then the question is, how good was the FBI's fingerprint DNA analysis? Well, the uh, after the FBI closed its investigation, the uh, National Research Council came out with a report. They've been asked to do this report on the FBI's science in the anthrax investigation by the FBI, the FBI director himself. But instead of waiting for that analysis of the FBI science, the FBI closed its investigation before the Research Council came out with its conclusion. Well, the FBI had, a, I think, a sense of what that conclusion was going to be because they had several meetings with the National Research Council before. The conclusion was the science was really not good enough to draw any conclusions about where the attack anthrax came from. In other words, the assertion that it came from What they said was Bruce Ivan's RMR-1029 flask was not scientifically valid. You couldn't draw that conclusion with any scientific certainty. So they also said some other interesting things like the morse that formed the fingerprint were likely found at Dugway Proving Ground. Now, why did they say that? Well, it's a pretty simple analysis. We go through it in our petition. And what people don't understand is this flask that Bruce Ivan's controlled had only two Ingredients or two components. It had input from Bruce Ivins produced anthrax at at Fort Detrick. That was from what we call RMR 1030, and it had another input. Most of it, 85 percent, came from Dugway. A lot of people don't realize that that the the murder weapon that the FBI describes as the murder weapon, 85 percent of it came from Dugway. Now. Here's the other thing that the you have to look through the footnotes in the NRC report to figure this out. The FBI didn't tell you. And that is that uh, Bruce Ivins' RMR-1030 uh, supply of anthrax did not have the fingerprint Morse. So think about this. You got the murder weapon that the FBI says is the murder weapon has the fingerprint Morse. It has only two components, one of which Bruce Ivins doesn't have the fingerprint. What was the other component? Dugway. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that there are only two components. One doesn't have the fingerprint, the other one does. That's where the, the the attack anthrax came from. Or now we're not saying Dugway committed the attacks. What we're saying is whoever did the attacks, it appears got their anthrax from Dugway. Uh, may have gotten it from someone else who had the same anthrax that Dugway had. That would include Battelle. And there were probably others. So now there's another big picture point evidence-wise that a lot of folks don't understand about this. And that is, The scientists at Fort Detrick were very much uh, supportive of Bruce Ivins in terms of his innocence. And they were, of course, also defending themselves as against the FBI's claim that the anthrax came from Fort Detrick. So they started their own internal investigations. They started putting the pieces together. And uh, Colonel uh, Arthur Anderson, Dr. Arthur Anderson, uh, who who David, uh, you know, got in touch with and, and has talked with extensively. And we talked with him a little bit. And he gave us a number of documents you'll find in our exhibits. He was uh, in a key position at Fort Detroit And Colonel Anderson basically uh, disclosed to us that he attempted to report to the commander his findings that he thought would essentially exonerate Dr. Ivans and point in the direction of the real culprits. And he was told by uh, a high level, uh, either the commander or someone uh, close to the commander, don't do that because a few days ago, we had a high level visit from the Secretary of Army, and the someone in the delegation, maybe the Chief of Staff, maybe the Secretary, said, essentially, you know we don't want to hear your concerns about the FBI's investigation because the Commander himself raised it with the Secretary of the Army and And he was told, don't uh, basically he said, squelch the investigations, internal investigations you're doing and uh, and squelch the criticism of the FBI." So you got on the one hand, an F, um, an army basically cover up uh, of their own, you know, squelching their own scientists who could blow the whistle on this. And the other big picture thing is, is, and I'll stop on this and turn it back to Dave and you, but the other big picture point is that the FBI itself did, uh, how can I put this tactfully, uh, engage in its own cover up and the way they did that, and it's, it's technical, but it's, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, we know from the NRC report after the fact that Dugway was the more likely source of the fingerprint morphs. So the question is, why didn't the FBI report to the public and the Congress that Dugway's anthrax had the fingerprint? And I sort of dived into the details of the Army's records and we found a report where the Army had provided samples from Dugway to the FBI during a search, but all those samples were dead. They were not viable. Now, does that matter when you're doing DNA testing? Not necessarily, no. You could do DNA testing on dead material. The NRC says as much. And they said that material should have been tested, that there shouldn't have been a decision not to test. But what we found out was, and the NRC reports this, the, the FBI, for reasons which are not clear, established a policy which said, we're not going to do DNA testing on any sample that's not viable, on any sample that's dead. Well, what, what's the consequence of that? Dugway samples didn't get tested, so um, that was not accidental. Uh, you know they had to know what they were doing, and that they were excluding Dugway samples. They knew what I just told you—that Ivan's flask had Dugway material in it, eighty-five percent. So we really we detail this in the petition, but basically we have an army cover-up and an FBI cover-up, and an innocent man being scapegoated. And in the meantime, the real attackers are still at large.
1: And another fingerprint, James, a, a real fingerprint. It wasn't the morphs. It was the B subtilis was one of the fingerprints. And the when they didn't test Dugway, when they gave them a free ride, it was B subtilis that through our investigation, we find them continually having problems with that when they run these production runs. In fact, when Bruce Ivins received the number of production runs, I think there was 13 of them that he received that that comprised this flask from Dugway, which consisted of 85% of that. At least five of them were bad runs. They had to kill the run because of the B. subtilis contamination. So by not having uh, any kind of evaluation of Dugway's uh, material, they, not only did they n- skip looking at for the morphs, but they skipped looking for the B. subtilis. Now, B. subtilis was... In the two anthrax, the anthrax letters in New York City, it wasn't found in the the, the anthrax in, in Washington D.C. with the senators. But what was found there was this micro encapsulation, this aerialization. And otherwise, when you open that letter up, it's like a gas. It's not a gas, but it's like a gas. The electric charges have been altered so that it, it doesn't clump together. And it just is—it's just primed to inhale into you in your system. There's a, a sophisticated process where this silicon is brought into the exposorium, which is inside the the spore, uh, and it, it's 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 delicate and it's it's sophisticated. And then there's tin. The the FBI never talks about the contamination of tin. Then there's iron. They don't talk about that. Where oxygen is found out, and they really warp the silicon. They try to make it. It, they they try to refer back to it like it, it was like 10 years before that that silicon could be found in it and the 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 amounts the quantities of silicon were not from a natural source, they were arguing a natural source. Lawrence Livermore did examinations and studies and they showed that this was a lot of silicon there. It wasn't ever explained. So that's really important too. So they would be really the fingerprints that we could argue that's where they should have started. But even the National Academy of Sciences, it says through uh, progressive for uh, parallel evolution that these morphs could have developed on their own some kind of process they call parallel evolution. So it might not have been uh, when when Mick referred to uh, what, what this the standards there. They, they said that the the, the the connection with the Morse and the and the in the anthrax letters and the attacks were uh, consistent. Now the consistent is the lowest level. That means it could be non consistent. There's other areas which could be like suggestive or indic- indicative, uh, and, and or demonstrative, but none of them the highest level they couldn't go to. They could never take this evidence into court and get anywhere with it.
2: I think it's at this point that I'll underline the importance of that document that you're referring to, the National Academy of Science National Research Council's review of the scientific approaches used during the FBI's investigation of the 2001 anthrax letters that was published in 2011. It's a 233-page document that does provide some fairly damning evidence of the FBI's investigation and that I did cover at the time, but has not exactly been memory hold, but at least has been largely forgotten or is excluded from the conversation about anthrax far too often. So I will underline that and provide a specific link into that document so people can uh, review it for themselves. But uh, let's address, I think, one of the underlying points of this uh, conversation that I think is important to address and put on the table, which is that you mentioned the scrapping of the U.S. Biological Weapons Research Program in 1969 under Nixon as sort of a preparatory stage towards the 1972 Biological Weapons uh, Convention. However, It is extremely important to note that on September 4th, 2001, one week before 9-11, two weeks before the anthrax attacks began, Judith Miller, yes, that Judith Miller of the New York Times, did have a front page New York Times story, U.S. germ warfare research pushes treaty limits, revealing for the first time, at least in the pages of the New York Times, that over the past several years, the United States has embarked on a program of secret research on biological weapons that, some officials say, tests the limits of the global treaty banning such weapons. And that, as she goes on to report, that research did include anthrax. So let's address the U.S. government's uh, capabilities that's, that's right. in, well, in During
1: that of this. period of time, there were three CIA programs that Battelle, okay, now Battelle also, it's, they didn't mention it to the Congress, but Battelle had the four morphs. There's only it was eight, eight, eight of, of 10 of 1,070 samples, eight turned out with the four morphs. Seven of them were connected to eosemerid and one was Patel. Now, but during that period of Tal, Patel, remember that they're, they're the experts in aerialization and things of that nature. And remember that Perry Miksel, one of the alleged suspects, he, he dies from overdrinking, but he's working at Patel at the time. And he's upset by some of the experiments that they're doing. But what they have is three programs, I think was called, one was called Clear View or Clear Vision, one was called Bacchus, and one was called Jefferson. And these are all top secret programs, and that's what they were mentioning. Now, supposedly, this was in reaction to the Russians who were supposedly doing things, too, with smallpox. And at Sverdlovsk, I think uh, there was an anthrax leak, and a lot of people died there, eventually became out, that showed that there was not a natural anthrax, but there was a bioweapon anthrax. So that maybe explains why they were doing that. Now, the definition of a bioweapon was that it has to be offensive. That's when it's illegal if you're going to use it to attack and not necessarily defensive. I mean, it gets into a gray line because if you want to, to, to develop a vaccine, you have to have something to uh, work with and you need something that's virulent so that you can and then you try to figure out what the other side has that's so virulent and create monsters so what's happened as a result of that well these little labs have started up all across the country and you have got a lot of little frankensteins it, 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 originally the this the nixon's thinking was you don't want to give the third world countries their own nuclear bomb you give them this uh, this anthrax or these bioweapons and they don't have to have a lot of money they should have to know gr- how to grow it and then they can, you know, administer it. So that's where we've come now, full circle, where we have more advancement. And we've seen this with the the genome uh, splicing and and the DNA analysis, etc. Uh, we've become very sophisticated. <laughs> the science has uh, the science has basically outrun uh, the need to uh, haul it in and start legislating properly and stop start enforcing and start uh, examining what exactly is going on here because there's all types of experiments with life, altering life that is, are happening and, and they can all be applied, or a lot of them could be applied as weapons against
0: people. So James, if I could add something to um, your question about the disclosure by the New York Times a week, just a week before 9-11 of this secret bioweapons research in the US. It is a remarkable coincidence, if it is a coincidence, in terms of timing. But, you know, what Dave says is a critical point. And the idea that, you know, it it can be a sort of a gray line, a fine line between offensive versus defensive biological weapons research, I mean, it's true that it can be. But let's think about the particulars here, because they may point us and should have pointed the FBI in a direction the FBI didn't appear to be willing to go in their investigation. If you think about who's doing research for the government defensive research, legitimate defensive research against biological warfare agents that another country might use against us, that's Fort Dietrich if you're looking in terms of developing vaccines. Fort Dietrich is doing that at U.S. Amrit. But if you're not looking at developing a vaccine, but looking at some other defensive method, like how do you deal with a biological weapon that's made very dispersible through the air That's Dugway. Dugway does that type of research. That's not US Amerage. Now, what Dave was pointing out about the nature of the attack anthrax that went to the two senators and appeared to be designed to assassinate those two senators. People don't realize this was a biological warfare attack on Congress, basically. It didn't succeed thankfully, but it was intended to basically to kill two United States senators. Now, That particular anthrax, as Dave said, is much more refined. It was refined not to make it necessarily a different type of toxin, but to make it more dispersible. Now, who would likely have access to that type of anthrax that's made more refined to make it more dispersible if you're doing defensive work in the U.S. and the FBI has basically concluded this anthrax came from a U.S. facility, pretty much, and, you know, they they acknowledged it as the Ames strain, which is a U.S. military strain. So, you know, they never worked with dry aerosolized anthrax at Fort Detrick, but they did it Dugway. They They apparently did it Battelle, possibly in some of the research that the New York Times was talking about. So if someone were to acquire anthrax already processed in the way that ended up being used in the attack letters against the two US senators, they would have had to have acquired it from a US military facility doing defensive work, not in developing a vaccine, which you can do with with wet anthrax. They'd have to be getting it from somewhere that dealt with defensive work related to highly dispersible powdered anthrax. And that points towards the Doug Wayne Battelle, not
2: towards Fort Detrick. Such an important point. And as you say, a point that was excluded from the FBI's investigation. Do we have any uh, a- anything on the record to, to indicate that the FBI even considered this possibility in their, in their y-
1: Yes, we do. And, you know, I, I have something I, I put aside. I've, I've used it before. And I just want to read this to you because it was introduced to us by Barry Kissin. He's an attorney from, from uh, Frederick, Maryland. And Barry is sort of a, he's an advisor to the lawyers committee. And one of the things that Barry first told us was about this excerpt, what I'm going to read to you. And it has to do, I'm not going to read the whole thing, it has to do with Congressman Nadler, because Nadler is saying, please include in your answer, because this is to Mueller, why laboratories that have publicly identified as having the equipment and personnel to make anthrax powder, such as U.S. Army's Dugway Proving Grounds in Dugway, Utah, and Battelle Memorial Institute in Jefferson, Ohio, were excluded. <laughs> as possible sources. And this is the answer. Again, I'm not reading the whole answer, but towards the end, here's, here's, what, here's what the FBI says, and listen to this closely. Using various methods, the FBI investigated to two facilities that received samples from the parent flask and eliminated individuals from those facilities as suspects because <laughs> even if a laboratory facility had the equipment and personnel to make anthrax powder, this powder would not match the spores in the mailed envelopes if that lab had never received a transfer of anthrax from the parent flask. Now, it's a convoluted thinking. He admits that they had it, and then then he says that we eliminate them because they didn't have it, even though they had it. And as Mick pointed out, 85% of what Bruce Ivins got in that flask was from Dugway. And the 15% he put in from RMR 130 was his stuff. There was no morphs in that. So all the morphs would have had to come from Dugway. And the beep is, remember in, in that, that 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 flask, there was no uh, B, B subtilis at that time. There was no silicon, there was no iron, there was no oxygen. There was no tin. Where did that all come from? It wasn't in the flask. The morphs were in the flask, but we say, forget the morphs. Let's go beyond the morphs. Let's go to that stuff. Like with Nick said, this is aerolization, microencapsulation, very sophisticated. Who could do this? Fort Diedrich could not do this. The scientists that we talked to, we have four declarations from scientists that worked there that knew Bruce Ivins. They swear that he couldn't have been the the suspect. One is they knew him personally. He wasn't that type of guy, but he didn't have the knowledge and they didn't have the equipment at Fort Diedrich to do it. Patty Wersham, one another scientist that that testifies at the grand juries, she says the same thing. So just take the investigation to the next step. Let's open it up. Put all the cards on the table.
2: Well, from my my layman's perspective, let me just observe uh, from an outside perspective, I don't understand how anyone can look at this research and evidence that you've compiled here and not and say that the FBI investigation was complete and uh, comes to a, a final uh, verdict on what actually happened here. It's it's so full of holes, self-evidently so as you've pointed out here, and we have only begun to scrape the surface of the level of detail of evidence that you've provided. So I will once again really exhort people to go and look through this entire petition, but I do want to get into the specifics of what this petition is. Uh, I understand it's a petition to Congress for a redress of grievances related to government misconduct. Tell us a little bit about how this type of petition works in the legal sense.
0: Well, let me start with that day when you can chime in. Um, what we're asking the Congress to do is to establish an independent commission to do its own investigation of the anthrax attacks. Because as we detail on the petition, as, as we touched on here, the FBI didn't tell the Congress the truth. It's not just like the FBI did an incompetent job, which would be bad enough when you're talking about a bio-warfare attack on Congress, you'd wanna get it right. But they actually misled not just the public, they misled the Congress. They gave an, a prime example. This report back to Nadler and the committee on, you know, why did you exclude Battelle and Dugway as a source of the Anthrax? You know, it's not just that the FBI said something that was nonsensical, which they've quoted and it was nonsensical. And you, they were telling this to Congress, like here's why we eliminated Battelle and Dugway on a biowarfare attack on Congress itself. And it makes no sense, but it's worse than that. It's what they didn't say. In addition to what they did say, that's the problem. So what they should have said is what Dave told you tonight is, well, if you look at the attack anthrax, you see all this B. subtilis and the attack anthrax that went to the New York Post and the New York media. And then if you look at the D.C. attack anthrax, you see the silicon and the bio, the microencapsulation. Well, those two lines of evidence, and Dave properly calls them, you know, the real fingerprints, point to Dugway and Battelle. So when, when the Congress was saying, how did you eliminate Dugway and Battelle and Mueller assigns his name to a nonsensical answer back to them, that's important, but it's also important what he didn't say. He didn't say, well, there is a lot of evidence that points to Battelle and Dugway, which is the silicone microencapsulation and also the B subtilis. That was simply not disclosed to Congress and they wanted to know. So what we're what this petition is about is getting Congress to get the answers they wanted but they're not gonna get them from the FBI. The FBI had their chance. They didn't just screw it up. They misrepresented the material facts to Congress, literally and by omission. And so now you can't ask the FBI to investigate itself and the FBI does need to be investigated on this. So that's why the petition is asking for Congress to appoint an independent commission and also to do its own congressional investigation of this. I'll stop there and, and see what Dave wants to add to that.
1: Uh, No, that's that's well said, Mick. Uh, Basically, uh, the conflict is within the uh, Justice Department uh, with the FBI. uh, Who's to investigate their investigation? Who's to investigate them? And that's where Congress has to get involved. These uh, these, these agencies should be serving the people of the country. And it's, it's not in that regard. At least the higher ups aren't.
2: It makes sense because regardless of what one thinks about the corruption of Congress, at the very least, this was literally an attack on Congress, literally addressed to two senators who also happened to be two of the senators who were expressing, if not concern or skepticism, at least putting brakes on the passage of the USA Patriot Act, literally an attack on Congress, you would think Congress would be interested in knowing that the investigation of that attack was deliberately covered up. And I think this is all quite materially relevant to uh, the opening of a new congressional investigation. uh, If out of self-interest, if nothing else. As Um, Mick
1: said, too, as Mick mentioned before, too, this was really the beginning of the war on terror. They had the 9-11. It was like a one-two punch. And then you had the anthrax. Then you had uh, the attacks on Afghanistan. And then you had the dr- the drumming up of the <clears throat> Patriot Act. And then you had the drumming up to a- attacks on Iraq for weapons of mass destruction that never existed. You killed a million people for weapons of mass destruction that, that never existed. What can you say about that,
2: right? Yes, well, hopefully uh, the Congress can respond by at least addressing this petition. And I understand this is preparatory towards the uh, petition to U.S. Attorney General for a grand jury investigation.
0: That is true. Uh, we have a follow-up petition that we're planning in a month or so, as Dave said, to a federal grand jury. It would be the same type of, me- same type of mechanism we used in New York on the demolition evidence to a grand jury there um, to remind people, and folks may not realize this still, the federal law allows citizens to report a federal crime to a U.S. attorney and mandates the U.S. attorney to relay that evidence and report of a federal crime to a special grand jury. So it's not like the US attorney can look at it and say, oh, I don't, I'm not interested in doing this for whatever reason, you know, scientific, political, or otherwise, the US attorney has to relay it to the grand jury. And so we're planning to do this with the anthrax attack evidence as well. Um, And we hope we have a better initial response than we did in New York on the demolition evidence and that we don't have to sue a second time to force the U.S. Attorney, and maybe a different U.S. Attorney, to, we'll see, to do their job. Um, but that is the plan. They may want to elaborate on that.
1: No, that's that's right. Uh, again, we're going to be asking for a special counsel there when we go b- before the, uh, the U.S. Attorney, because uh, it's a similar situation. Uh, and this, uh, this petition will be a little broader, and it will go into the various crimes that have been committed will outline the crimes, including treason, that Mick may want to talk about, but certainly these bioweapons crimes, and murder, right, that has no statute of limitation.
0: Well, treason is worth noting. Should I mention that now, James? Or? Yes, quite quickly. So it's, it's, a, um, it's a federal crime, of course, and a federal statute to commit treason. It's also a crime in the Constitution. I think it may be the only crime specified in the Constitution. And because we had an attack that was domestic from within the United States using biological weapons against the government of the United States, the United States Congress, uh, and for a political purpose, you're basically talking about treason. I mean, that's the short version.
2: Again, the the implications of this are incredibly vast, and they go so far to the heart of the mechanisms that have been governing the not just the United States, but really internationally, this entire war on terror paradigm that's been created, um, that I think the the ramifications of this type of investigation cannot be overstated. So I think it is extremely important that this line of inquiry be pursued, as well, of course, as the 9-11 petition that you've put out and and the various uh, mechanisms that you've put in place regarding 9-11. And as we said at the beginning of this conversation, we're going to update people about the status of your various 9-11 work. Uh, Mick or David, would you like to talk about that?
0: you want to start, David? I'll
1: start, and Mick will, will certainly finish up. Uh, back in, I, was, I think it was November 8th or uh, November 9th of 2018, we received a a letter from the U.S. Attorney Berman, who said that he received and reviewed our material and that he would comply with the uh, the law, which was U.S.C. 18 U.S.C. 3332A. And uh, that had to do with him making a presentation to the, uh, to the grand jury. So we were fairly excited about that. Nothing happened forever. We had contacted, Nick and I had talked to uh, the, the office there, and they couldn't tell us anything. And eventually we had to sue. Now, w- what happened is they come back, the U.S. attorney, and say, we don't have standing. Now, we do have standing, or at least we argue we have standing. Architects and Engineers is one of the, the, uh, the plaintiffs, along Richard Gage. Then we have Commissioner Joya, who is a fire commissioner. He's he's from Nassau County in New York. He worked on the piles. He has friends that were killed. We have the one co-plaintiff who lost her husband was a valiant firefighter. We have another co-plaintiff who lost her brother. He's a valiant firefighter. We have a Robert. McIlvain, Robert McIlvain, who lost his son, Bobby McIlvain, And then we have Chief O'Kelly who was a hazmat fire chief in New York City who has a, a permanent disability because of it. So we think that we have uh, standing. Now we're arguing that and Mick can take it further because he's working directly on the petition in the brief.
0: Well, we did oppose uh, the government's motion to dismiss. This is the New York case on the demolition evidence of uh, the towers, which we did the grand jury petition on and trying to force the US attorney to give the petition to the grand jury. And we have uh, really, I don't know if this has ever been done before. I, I don't think I've seen a case exactly like this because the government is trying to say, we don't have standing to litigate this. Even all the, the great plaintiffs that David mentioned who have suffered you know so terribly from the attacks and the government is saying none of these folks have a right to sue to get this evidence put before a grand jury, which I just find personally offensive. But putting that aside, you know, what we're really doing here is saying we're exercising a right under the First Amendment of the Constitution to petition the government regarding the need to look at this evidence. Now, the U.S. Attorney is treating this as if we're petitioning the U.S. Attorney. Well, we did petition the U.S. Attorney, but that's not the only government entity we're petitioning. We're also petitioning the grand jury itself, which is a government entity. We have a right to petition the grand jury under the first amendment. Now, so the government's trying to say, we don't even have standing to complain that the U.S. Attorney is roadblocking the delivery of our petition to a government entity, to which we have a right to petition, which is the grand jury. It's one thing to say, if the U.S. Attorney doesn't want to look at our petition itself, but can it really you know, what authority does it have to prevent the delivery of our petition to another government entity that we're forced by a federal statute to go through the U.S. attorney to have uh, documents delivered to the grand jury? That's a federal statute, but they can't change the constitutional right to petition the grand jury. So can we not have standing to complain that a federal agency, one federal agency is obstructing the delivery of a First Amendment petition to another federal agency? I don't understand that. It makes no sense to me.
1: Yeah, and when you think of it, like Mick said, right? like we said, these people suffered uh, terrible injury. Uh, Bob McIlvain lost his son. One lady lost her husband. One lady lost her brother. It, it, the others are have disabilities from it. How, how can you say you don't have standing? It's incredible.
2: It's uh, it's not only incredible, I think it speaks to the gravity of the situation that we find ourselves in and the importance of the work that you're doing um, in raising these issues. If nothing else than in raising these issues, bringing it to the public's attention, compiling this evidence, making it publicly available, and taking the legal steps to try to bring some sort of justice to these issues, uh, it is commendable work, and I will once again refer people to that work at lc4911.org. That's lcfor911.org. And of course, as I say, all of the resources that we talk about today are going to be linked in the show notes for this conversation. So people can examine them for themselves. But finally today, uh, if people want to support the work that you are doing, how can they best do so?
1: Well, let's, uh, thank you, uh, for allowing us to be here, James, how they can best support us is to go on our website, lc lcfor911.org. And, uh, you can help us through donations in order to do the level that we're doing we want to take it up higher we have other grand jury petitions to do besides this as you know there was myriad crimes committed in 9 11. we're looking at a government obstruction and misconduct grand jury which will link everything together and we have some really interesting people uh, highly qualified people would like to get involved in that petition Uh, We also, we didn't even touch Shanksville yet. We didn't touch the Pentagon yet. We'd like to do that. We have plans for a campaign, for a FOIA campaign, maybe a hundred FOIAs, Freedom of Information Acts. We'll create a a, a large library we would share with the public, but we need more manpower and we need money. As all, uh, we're nonprofit, so it's tax deductible. And if you think that what we're doing is good uh, and you're listening to this broadcast, please help us. We need your, your financing. It will be go for a good purpose and we'll do the best we can to try and connect these crimes, take them into the court, sue what we have to, and get some kind of finally closure on this uh, terrible situation and a terrible crime that was committed against the people of the United States.
2: Make anything to add on that note before we go?
0: Well, that captures it pretty well. I would just add that in addition to, you know, sort of desperately needing some financial support, folks don't understand how much we're volunteering and how much we're donating of our own money. You know, Dave and I are paid part-time for a couple of years. We worked without being paid before and we'll probably work without being paid in the future, but uh, we really need more attorneys on board. Um, So, you know, with all those civil litigation attorneys out there, public interest attorneys listening, you know, please volunteer some time. We could use your help on this team. Um, In addition, we need more young people to get involved. I think uh, for some reason, maybe because it happened 20 years ago, younger people are thinking it's not their issue, but you know, this continuing war on terror is affecting their future. And, you know, we're not talking yet about coronavirus, but we are talking about a biological weapon and the perpetrators who committed the biological weapon attack haven't been brought to justice, they're still out there. They're free to commit another one whenever it suits their purpose. And it could also suit their purpose, even if something like the coronavirus isn't a biological weapon, it might also suit their purpose to take advantage of a biological outbreak. And, you know, the folks who committed these attacks have some sophistication, so this isn't over. And it's not a, it's not a, an issue in the past. This is this is very much an issue for the new generation.
2: It, it certainly is. I couldn't stress that enough. And I, if people need more elaboration on that point, I will just direct them to my own episode 383 of my podcast on covid nine eleven from Homeland Security to Biosecurity and my recent uh, work on the uh, dawn of false flag bioterrorism that I think are highly relevant to this discussion and do connect some of the dots institutionally and legislatively between the anthrax attacks and what's happening now. I know that's beyond the purview of what you're addressing in these petitions, but I think it's an right. important uh, context for what's happening right now. I think we're going to have to leave the conversation there for today. Obviously, I am looking forward to updates on this as uh, as your petitions progress. So thank you very much for your time, gentlemen. Thank, thank you, James. Thanks a lot. Take care.